Now, last week, we navigated what was a fairly difficult passage, not in understanding, but in application. I think we can acknowledge that, myself included. I don't know that this week is a lot different. And the sermon almost comes to us in a bit of two parts. So I'll tell you on the front end, the first half really is technical. We're going to have to look at answer. What does the Bible say about this idea of being a servant? Uh, embracing and, and responding to some of the critiques of the Bible as it relates to servanthood, slavery. What are some things that have been placed upon the Bible and attacked as far as what the Bible's position on some of these things are. So this front part this morning will be a little uh, more heavily technical, trying to answer and ask some of those questions. Then we move from that into what's maybe a bit more pragmatic and applicable. So bear with me as we try to walk in both those worlds this morning in this text, that if you're able, please stand for the reading of chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. These are the very words of God. Servants, some of your translations may say bond servant, slave, servant, try the better word here, servant, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. First Peter 2, 18 through 25. The word of God for the people of God. And God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do ask and acknowledge some things during this time. We ask... Uh, that your spirit uh, would do what the Bible tells us he does, brings truth home to your people. And him being the mediator of truth, we pray he would do so this morning in a Christ-honoring and clear way. And what we acknowledge is that the Bible's from you. It's authoritative. It's truthful. We can trust it. We also acknowledge that it's powerful. God, so we ask that you move in power, or that you would shape our hearts in biblical directions. In Christ's wonderful name I pray, amen. So one of the uh, both historic and contemporary critiques of the Bible as it relates to this idea, right, that this verse 18 brings into view is the historical and contemporary criticism that the Bible endorses and promotes slavery. Some of you may have heard that. Some people have used it as reasons to distrust it, to toss it out. So we can't talk about a verse or a passage like this without both acknowledging the critique and answering the critique this morning. In fact, 
this isn't the only place it's found. So we can go to other passages that bring this idea into view and go, you know, at surface level reading, this passage seemingly presents some difficulty. I don't know what to do with it. In fact, I kind of read it and I'm disturbed to the point that I'd like to distance myself from it a bit. So another place, so not just Peter, but Paul. You don't have to flip there, but Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he writes this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Hmm. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. So both Peter and Paul, though the words they use are a little different, and we'll talk about that, at least present, at bare minimum, they do present an idea that there is a dynamic of one human being being possessed by another human being and the person in the position of being labeled as it were as a possession is exhorted to obey their earthly master. Now that should strike us as a little bit uncomfortable in fact, should cause us to ask some real questions. Well, maybe the Bible does promote slavery. Maybe it does condone it. And if that's the case, whoo, maybe I need to distance myself a little bit. So let's look at that this morning for, for a moment. What are these biblical authors saying? What is their point? And what is the Bible promoting condoning or is it even doing that in this passage at all okay so the first thing to note would be this let's acknowledge that there are times in the uh, American church's history where passages like this have been used to promote and do evil it's just factually true you can go back through uh, sermon histories in the 1700s, in the 1800s. You can read manuscripts. Again, not saying everyone, but it's true. Some took these passages, preached them from pulpits, and used it to validate the practice of evil. Okay. Hey, by the way, we haven't heard that voice in this sanctuary for about a year. Amen. Praise God. That's right. She's back. She's back. Miss Lolita, we're happy to have you. Uh, okay, so it's factually true that that happened. Now, to take that, to take someone's misuse and abuse of Scripture and somehow make that a reason to, to deny the validity of the Bible it lacks all intellectual uh, uh, congruity and integrity. It's akin to one of my children 
going two plus two is five and me deciding that let's just throw out all of mathematics because a child practiced it inappropriately. Okay, so just because part of the Bible has been misused and abused historically doesn't mean that there's actually something wrong with the text itself. Are you with me? Just like if a child adds two and two together incorrectly, the problem is not with the objective truth of mathematics. The problem is the incorporation and application of mathematics in that situation. Okay, so what are they doing and what aren't they doing? Well, let's remember the Bible is written in a specific time, into a specific context, into practical cultural tensions. So when we hear bondservant, servant, or slave, what is natural for us is to picture, and we all do this, right? It's normal. It's understandable. The thing we picture is the American historical context of slavery, which was race-based, horrific imprisonment, and ownership and abuse of people based, based on skin color. That, there is no place in the Bible where you would ever find that condoned, ever. In the first century AD, when he talks about servant, bond servant, slave, that is not the situation. So if we have that picture in mind, if we have our American historical example of this in mind when reading these texts, then of course it's disturbing. But if we recalibrate and step into first century, it's still problematic in some ways, but it is not the same scenario. So in first century Rome, some historians have estimated that up to one-third Hear that, one-third of the empire might have fallen into this category, servant, bondservant. In fact, the dynamic of servant, bondservant is much closer to our modern-day manifestation of employer-employee than it is our historical manifestation of race-based slavery in America. Okay, so in this servant-bond-servant classification in the Roman Empire, you would have people that were practicing doctors, lawyers, tutors, educators, business people. Not all of them were that, but some of them were. In this dynamic, some people would voluntarily place themselves in this bond-servant-master dynamic because it actually allowed them more economic opportunity than if they were to simply be poor, but possessing all of their freedoms. Okay, so in first century Rome, there was an economic dynamic here that was saying you could make a living, you could even purchase your own freedom. You could have more opportunity if you stepped in to a role like this. So one way you entered into this role was by voluntarily placing yourself within this construct. That's one way you would have done it. Second way, and a pretty common way that you would have found yourself in this classification of people, is if you were a prisoner of war. So instead of the Romans executing you, 
there was at least this opportunity to keep living and be placed in this dynamic of, yes, you would have a master over you, but you have a viable job, a viable living. Okay, but let's not color it all with bright colors. There were some scenarios in which it was horrific because the master, as Peter will say here, you may have been working, you may have been earning a living, you may have been under employment, but you were treated cruelly. Didn't do something around the house like they wanted you to, and they did beat you. Weren't tutoring their children as they wanted you to, and they would beat you. Weren't practicing medicine up to their desired return on their investment, and reper uh, uh, repercussions would come for that. So it wasn't as free as our workplace dynamic, but it was closer to that than our historical manifestation of slavery. But Jamie, we still have the idea of one human possessing another. We do. But notice this. Peter doesn't condone the practice. He tries to shape the reality of it because he knows he's writing to Christians and lots of them are in this category. So what is he saying to them? He's saying, here's your situation. And you're in it. Some of you are in it contractually. Some of you are in it because you're a prisoner of war. But you have named the name of Jesus as your Lord. And this is your situation. So now I'm trying to help orient the difficulty of your specific situation in the direction of Christ. That's why he writes as he does right here. So his purpose isn't to comment on this institution, as it were, in first century Rome. His purpose is to shape Christians who find themselves present in it in the direction of Jesus. So it would be unfair to say that he is promoting it. It's not promoting, it's not his purpose in writing. He's trying to shape the perspective on it for those who find themselves in it in a Christ-oriented way. Well, but Jamie, why does the Bible not say they should get their freedom? Isn't freedom better and more God-honoring than one human possessing another? Of course it is. In fact, there is nothing about one human possessing another that ever reaches the level of every human being being made in the image of God as God designed it. It does not promote that or condone that. Never has, never will. But post-Genesis chapter 3, we live in an evil world where evil is perpetrated. And what you find the Bible doing is stepping into the reality of evil and trying to reshape it in a direction that brings God honor and glory. So why doesn't the Bible say they should get their freedom? Well, do you know that it actually does? And all the criticisms of the Bible and bond servants and slavery that we've been told, the Bible never uh, promotes, it does promote freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. In fact, the Bible directly promotes freedom. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. It's pretty clear. The Bible does say, you know what? Freedom is better 
than possession. That's what it promotes. That's what it endorses. But it also knows that's not always going to happen. So when it doesn't happen, it wants to shape it in a biblical direction. So what is the biblical approach to undoing the fabric of this first century dynamic? Well, what's also fascinating is there is an entire book of the New Testament that addresses the issue of slavery. An entire book, it's called Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. He possessed a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus escaped, ran away, met Paul, came to faith. And Paul says, hey, Onesimus, I need to write a letter to a guy. You may know him. His name's Philemon. And if you're not too busy, I'd like you to take the letter back to him. Now for Onesimus, that may mean death. You know what Paul writes in that letter? He says, Philemon, I'm paraphrasing here. It is my expectation that you receive Onesimus back as your brother, not as your bondservant. Do you know how the Bible thinks through dismantling slavery? It's by transforming the internal realities of our sin and evil to new kingdom living so that it can deconstruct the sinful prejudices that lead to slavery in the first place. Paul knows Could Onesimus get a contractual freedom from Philemon? Yes. What's going to dismantle the whole thing from the inside out is when owner sees this person they used to possess as a brother. And that only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So does the Bible promote slavery? Categorically, no. Does it want to undo the entirety of that type of dynamic in humanity? Yes. Does it promote freedom over possession? Clearly so. And it wants to start at the ground level of reshaping human hearts to dismantle the prejudice that lead to these sinful manifestations in the first place. That's the biblical approach. So the next time someone wants to lay the criticism while the Bible promotes slavery, you with great grace say, it does not. There is one slavery that it speaks about with great clarity that is true. We were slaves to sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from that so we don't have to be chained to the impaired manifestations of evil institutions any longer. That's why when the abolitionist movement in the UK and the US came to fruition, it was led by Christians 
who knew what the biblical exhortation towards freedom was, and they put it into practice. So here is Peter writing in a real moment, in a real time, into a real context, into a dynamic that, again, hear me, it's closer to our employer-employee than it is our historical manifestation of slavery. So in some ways, it falls short, but in some ways he's saying, hey, when you go to work, and you've got a horrific boss. Here's a pattern to follow. And when you go into the marketplace, and some of you are feeling this, and you're going to feel it uh, with more intensity. And the reality that you're a Christian is calling into question your employment, which I know is happening and will be coming with increasing intensity. Here's an example to follow. This is a way to bring it more into the 21st century for a lot of us. So what does Peter say? Well, here's what he says. He says, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God that one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Okay, so some of you may lose your job for being a Christian. Some of you may lose your job for upholding the biblical ethic of sexuality, of design, of the image of God. That's unjust suffering. Peter says, now it's actually of no advantage to you when you suffer because you're doing wrong things. He's saying, don't brag about that. But if it's unjust, he's saying it's a gracious thing in the sight of God for what credit is when you sin and are beaten for it. Now, we would never have condoned that. Uh, uh, but, but if in your workplace you're unjustly persecuted, maybe you get demoted, whatever it is, he's saying when you do good and suffer, it is a gracious thing in the mind of God. So Peter assumes that we are active in doing good. He says, what's our role? Keep actively promoting good. Standing for what is good. Standing for what is right. Standing for what is true. Standing for what the Bible says actually promotes human flourishing for all people, which is living created life in the design of the creator. Do good. Amen? Do good. And when you suffer for doing good, it is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. But he doesn't just say that. It's actually doing good in the proper way. For if you're standing for what is good, but you're doing it as a jerk, Peter says, that's really not a gracious thing in the eyes of God. If you're standing for what is good and you're fighting for ways that look like your culture and not like Christ, Peter's not commending that to us this morning. But he is saying contend for what is good, what is righteous, what is true. How do we do it then? Because we don't do it like the world, do it like this. For this you have been called to what? To suffer unjustly. Which means when it's happening to you, it's not a mistake and it shouldn't be a surprise. For to this you have been called. And we gotta do something with the text here. This isn't my opinion on the matter. 
You have been called to suffer unjustly. Why? Because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. That idea of footsteps there, the, the original language is now, a lot of us are old enough to remember this. Some of us aren't. But when we used to have those real thin, I don't even remember what they're called, those sheets of paper and you put on top of something and you'd trace it. You'd try to get it exactly right. Uh, there's probably an app for that now. I have no idea. Uh, but the idea there is tracing a copy. And when we are trying to trace something, originality is not the purpose. A new way of doing it is not what's in view. Tracing means an exact overlay. That's the idea here. So if I am going to step into the world of unjust suffering, contending for what is good, what Peter's saying is, take your life, lay it over top of Jesus' example, and make sure that you are an exact tracing of what Jesus did. That's the idea here. So then we say, okay, Peter, conceptually, I get it. How do I do it? What is the example? What am I trying to trace and bring home to me? Well, good question. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Uh-oh. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Strike two. And while he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what is the example of Jesus? Well, I'm out there. I'm actively engaged in trying to do good, to do righteousness, to take my appropriate stands in a Christ-honoring way, and to do that, well, sin's not allowed. And you know, the root of sin towards another person, if you go all the way back to the garden, is a dehumanizing act. What does it mean to dehumanize someone? It means to treat them in any way, shape, or form that doesn't acknowledge that they are made in the image of God. And I struggle with this, or right, I'm going to tell you right now. I struggle with a lot of things that I hear. And to look at the person saying it and remembering they're made in the image of God. But they are. Even the most violent opponent of Christian thought, James would say, is made in the image of God. And when I curse them or get vile at them or commit sin with my words and actions towards them, that is a dehumanizing thing because I'm not honoring and acknowledging the image of God inside of them. Peter says, don't do it. He says, don't do it because Jesus didn't do it. Also, when Jesus was being threatened, and I mean, go back and read the crucifixion story. They put a crown of thorns on his head, beat him. 
And then the Roman soldiers get right in front of him and prostrate towards him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. Let's worship the King of the Jews here. Look at this king. Come on, king. Save yourself. Thought you were powerful. And the Son of God takes it. And never fights back. Does not curse them. Does not revile them. The same person that the Bible says upholds the entirety of creation with a singular word of his power. That is power. Amen? Is bleeding and barely able to lift himself up off the ground while these pagan Roman soldiers mock him for the reality of who he is. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was cursed, he did not curse in return. And when they threatened him, he did not say, just wait till you get what's coming to you. He said, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we want to move biblically in and through difficult times, the Bible says Jesus is our example. Don't revile, contend for good, don't threaten. Take a stand for righteousness. Don't slander. And guess what? You will suffer unjustly. And it's not a mistake. And God's not surprised. And in Romans chapter 12, 21, you know what Paul says? You don't overcome evil by evil. You overcome evil by doing good. Same thing Peter says here. Do good. Be righteous. Stand up for righteousness in a Christ-oriented direction. Okay, so why do we do this? Well, because we can continually entrust ourselves, verse 23, to the one who judges justly. There's a day of judgment coming. There's a judge in heaven who's active. He sees all, knows all, hears all. And trust ourselves to him. Why do we do that? Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So here's Peter's point. Why are we to bear along with the unjust reproaches of other people? Because Jesus bore our sins in him. And none of us have ever been offended by another person in the same degree that we had offended God. So in a way, Peter's saying, hey, Jesus absorbed all of our blows. And we then now, like him, can absorb the blows of other. In fact, that, I, that idea here of he bore our sins in his body, we'll talk a fancy word here. It's a theological idea of imputation. You can kind of think through it as, as transference in a sense. That it is imputed. He actually took our sin. And he took our sin 
to set us free from it. So biblically, you have three ideas of what's transferred in the Bible. And here's how it works. Adam's sin gets imputed to us. We're guilty. Then we earn every bit of that with our own actions. Adam's sin to us. Here's the second one. Our sins to Jesus. Here's a third part of it. Jesus' righteousness to us. Those are the three moments of, of things that are imputed in the Bible. And this is what Peter's talking about here. Your sins were transferred and absorbed by Christ so that his righteousness could be given freely to you. And Peter says, if you want to step in to the pragmatic reality of that righteousness, he says, start here. When you suffer unjustly, look like the one who suffered for your sake. And that's the gospel. That you and I, in a lost and dying estate, had our sins taken off of us and put on our Savior. And by repentance and faith, his perfect righteousness is lifted and placed on you and me. Like that. And we who are unjust are pronounced just. And Peter says, now step into it. Because here's what was true about you and me. Verse 25. You are straying like sheep. It's Isaiah 53. It's what Peter has in mind here. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone to our own ways. And God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He says here in verse 25. You like sheep have gone astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The only possible way you and me can move into a culture that will slander us, revile us, punish us for what we believe, the only way to do it is with hearts that have returned to the true and great shepherd. And if we really want to push the kingdom forward it's not by fighting the same way the world does. And I wondered many times this week, if we just made a commitment, maybe this isn't true of us, maybe it is, but I've wondered this week, if we would just make a commitment to this week, our view of the world and lives in it would be more informed by the New Testament than the news, what would change? It's a practical application for us. What if just this week we committed more New Testament than news this week? Because we don't want to look like pundits. We want to look like our Savior. Contend for good in a Christ-oriented direction. And trust that that being God's plan, he will judge justly. Know that unjust suffering is here. And it's coming with increasing effect. And God has written the battle plan for victory because it's found in the Lord. Amen? I, uh, I heard a story I'd never heard before uh, this week in researching uh, for this. 
And it embodies in a radical way this idea. Unjust suffering, and in the midst of unjust suffering, setting the example of following the Lord Jesus and watching the Lord Jesus do radically miraculous transforming things amidst it. Now, there was a Korean pastor. Uh, he started pastoring in the 1920s. Uh, and in 1948, his name was Sun Yang Won. Probably got that wrong, but did my best. In 1948, communist troops came into his village. Right, took it over. Uh, he had two sons, two boys. It's hard to think about, especially if you've got boys. Take his sons. They line his sons up. And they want them to recant their profession of Christ. The sons won't. They shoot both of them in the head. Some time passes. The village is liberated. And everybody knows who committed the execution. It's another man in the village. In fact... It was another man in the village that was the same age as his own sons. And now, this murderer is on trial. He is found guilty. And he himself is headed to execution. And in steps, the same man whose sons were murdered and ask the judge to stay the execution and grant him the adoption rights of the murderer. It's granted. He adopts the murderer of his own sons as his own. And the murderer comes to faith and is reborn as a son of God. If we want to see the kingdom of Christ come in ways that short circuit our natural perspective on this world, we do this. We stand for good and we absorb the blows. We get reviled, we love in return. We get slandered, we bless. It's almost like Jesus said, love your enemies, almost. And that's hard. And the only way to do it is if we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, the one who took our blows, who took our condemnation and placed it upon himself so that we in the gracious gift of Christ, can be set free. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would, beginning with me, make me, in the power of your spirit, a man that will step into this. I just find a lot more comfort in getting angry and belittling people than I do looking like my Savior. And so God, in biblical directions, 
Show us how to contend for what is good, what is right, what is true, what is righteous. And help us know that when we do so, we will be treated unjustly. But so are you, Jesus. And we ask for the power of your promises and word that if you empower us to step into those directions, God, that we will see you work in miraculous, supernatural ways, that we would be a people that entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, and that you would begin to transform even those that would persecute us from the inside out. And God, we ask this. We acknowledge its difficulty, so we praise you for the presence of the Spirit within us. And we ask forgiveness for all the ways in which our life is not a tracing of Jesus's. Thank you for your grace and mercy. For anyone that hasn't tasted that, I pray that today is the day that they repent of their sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection as the transformational reality for all of eternity. We pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.